Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 22nd, 2019, and this is episode 2364 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday, but we're doing a Monday show. We're doing a listener feedback show. When I take a Monday off... Uh, I tend to always change the schedule up a little bit. I think if we miss a standalone show, it's one thing. When we miss a feedback show, uh, with as many emails as I do not get to respond to, as many contacts as I do not get to respond to uh, already, uh, you know, kicking eight to ten that we would respond to to the curb and creating that backlog, just not what I want to do. So we're going to do feedback show today. Here's what we got. I got it. I'm doing what I did last week. Got a long one. Got to go a little faster with each segment. Try to get a lot of variety in for you. Proper care, maintenance, and use of the common garden hose. There is some things you probably don't know. And one would be what I call hose break-in procedure. you got to break your hose in right. How do you do that? We'll tell you in a moment. The real lesson of the government shutdown. Have a plan B. Where have we heard this before? Of taxes, side hustles, and 1099Ks. Thoughts on multiple income streams versus multiple businesses. Thoughts on growing invasive and banned plants. Amending and fertilizing clay soils. More on fishless aquaponics, sort of, kind of, hydroponics. What are drips? How do they work as an investment? And a new way to heat a greenhouse with compost. I'm kind of jazzed on this one. And the struggle with fighting confirmation and perception bias. And then colleges are putting tuition on sale. Guess what that means? All of that and more in just a moment. Before we get to your feedback today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. RidgeWallet is just, to me, it's the coolest thing that there is. I, I can't believe that when these minimalist-style wallets came out, it took me so long to become a user of them. And I have to tell you, the only reason I did is because Ridge Wallet came to us and said, we think your audience would like what we have. And I was like, okay, well, and they're like, let us send you a couple. So they sent me a couple, and I cleaned out my wallet, and I put one in my pocket, and I never looked back. I was convinced when I first went to this that within a couple weeks I would give up. And I would be like, I need my billfold back. There's certain things I took out of it. I really don't like that. I want my, you know. And what happened was I just didn't. And I enjoy my existence more because there's not a lump on my butt when I sit down in my chair or in my car. I know nobody's going to wand my ass with a with a with an eight dollar part off eBay and steal my identity. Uh, it's it's just great. And anything that can minimize things in your life tends to make it better. Ridge Wallet does that. There's some other cool stuff. A great urban uh, day pack, great cell phone cases, and more. You find it all at RidgeWallet.com. MSB members, you get a discount on all purchases from RidgeWallet.com. 10% off everything. Next up today, ButcherBox.com. Hey, guys, ButcherBox is like having a professional meat shopper. Go out and look at your pro look at me and pick the best stuff for you, bring it back to you. And let me tell you um, 
I had Ridgewall or not Ridgewall, ButcherBox come to me, uh, the company doing Butcher ButcherBox, and ask about a second sponsorship slot. And I really didn't have it available, but I still wanted to know. And basically, I told them I wouldn't do it. And here's why: it was for like a shake, like a you know a shake, a box of shake stuff for making nutrition shakes. Uh, and they were kind of more of the high carbohydrate type of thing. And I'm like, that's just not what I I wouldn't use it, so I wouldn't recommend it. And so the reason I recommended Butcher Box is because they sent me a big-ass box of meat, and I cooked it, and I ate it. I said, this is fantastic. I am happy to have these people as a sponsor. So it's not even – when I bring you a sponsor like Butcher Box, it's not just is the company a good company that keeps its word because it's the same company for the shake stuff. Would I use it? Would I spend my money on it? Absolutely. And, in fact, I'll tell you this. Butcher Box is the only sponsor I have that pays me with barter instead of money. That's right. They pay me and I take my payment for their monthly sponsorship in a monthly big-ass box of meat. That tells you that I am committed to ButcherBox as a customer uh, and in endorsing them. Discount for MSB members. You get free bacon for life. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. Okay, guys, and of course I did take yesterday off. I took yesterday off because my wife came to me and said, Hey, we don't have the grandkids tomorrow Why don't you take a day off and we'll go do something? When your wife deals with all the crap my wife deals with and makes a request of you like that, you say yes. But then I realized why we didn't have the kids. It's Martin Luther King Day, and that meant that the kids were going to be out of school, and my son and his wife, when they get an opportunity like that, they do the same thing. They took a personal day each from work so they could spend time with their kids. So I thought it was great, and if I would have known that, Not only would have I planned to take the day off, but the sale I was running on the MSB, I would have scheduled it to expire on Tuesday. Realizing that was the case, I sent out an email yesterday and a post yesterday and social media yesterday that said, hey, we're extending the sale. So you can get the MSB for $35 for life, $35 a year for life for one more day, discount code 35-4-LIFE, 35-F-O-R-L-I-F-E, 35 for life. Just going to say it's a good deal all the time. That makes it a great deal, and I'll let you know I'm in negotiations right now for another new um, discount vendor that may be the source of the best fertilizer you can get your hands on in the world. Uh, I, I really mean it. I think that this will be one of those things that you're going to be like, wow, I'll give this a shot, and when you do and you see what it can do for your plants, I think it's going to blow you away. I'm not going to tell you who it is just yet. I will tell you it's a small company doing things a little bit differently, and I will say that fish are involved. And it's not a high NPK. It's actually a very low NPK. This is a biological fertilizer. And I am still testing it to see if it's going to make the grade with my, you know, my, what it takes to get my endorsement. Because even an MSB vendor that's not a direct sponsor, it's an endorsement. I wouldn't have them in there if I wouldn't use them myself. I'm working with this product. And when it satisfi satisfies me, I'll be bringing it to you. I just want you to know that I'm continuously trying to build the value of the MSB. With that, let's go ahead and get into today's show. And again, this is feedback for me. You send it by email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. TSPC in the subject line and then question for Jack or whatever, Jack, your jerk, whatever it is. And uh, then I'll try to get you guys answers. And, you know, be concise. Ask your question. Make your point in one sentence. Hit the return key a couple times. Put some space in there. And give me your details. It'll go a lot better. First one comes from uh, Jim. Jim says, hey, I bought the Gilmore hose on your recommendation. I have to say it does kink a lot less than my other hoses. I still have some issues with loops and kinks. Trying to get those out of the hose. Wonder if you have any suggestions for that. And it got me thinking. 
Is there a right and wrong way to take care of a hose? I know that seems like a stupid question, but actually, maybe it's not. Maybe there are things I didn't learn because really, when I was a kid, nobody told me anything about hoses other than go get it and put water here with one. Uh, Jim, it's actually a great question, and I think this is something I have done you guys a disservice with. Um, there, there is one step in a like you call a break-in procedure to get those kinks, to get those loops, even with a high-quality hose like the Gilmore hose, out of the hose. So I don't care how good your material is. If you take anything and you wind it up in a tight coil and band it so it can't un unwind, and then it sits for a long time, and garden hoses do not have expiration dates. When you buy a hose, that thing could have been fabricated on Tuesday, sent to a warehouse on Wednesday, and shipped to you on Thursday, Uh, and that could have all happened in one week, or it could have been those days three years apart. I mean, you just don't know. It could have sat in the back of a, of a semi-truck in temperatures below freezing. It could have sat in the back of a semi-truck with temperatures above 150 degrees. Again, you just don't know. And generally speaking, even good quality hoses like Gilmore, they tend to take those bands and tighten them up a little tight, and that little end piece gets a kink in it or whatever. But the big problem is what we call memory. So if you wind something up in a tight coil, when you go to unwind it, those, those, those loops stay in it. The way to break in any hose, and remember, I should just start with a quality hose. This is one of my nitpick things on being cheap instead of frugal. But go ahead and attach the female end of the hose to a hose bib. And then unwind the reel hand over hand. So you put your hands in the center and unwind it like it's a wheel. And Unwind it in an absolute straight line as far as you can go. Only bend or curve if you have to for space. So if you have a 50-foot wide yard and you have a 75-foot hose, when you get to some point, you're going to have to kind of go off on a, an angle or something. Unwind it all the way. The last little bit of it, because the female end's going to be on the outside, the male end's going to be on the inside, unless your hose manufacturer is an idiot. And the last little bit is going to be where the most amount of kink is. Take something and put like heavy to put it down on the end of the hose and leave it completely flat. I'm going to tell you to turn the water on, but I'm also going to say don't actually use it yet. And if you have, if you haven't done this with a hose you've had for a while, you can still do this. It's just you, your life will be better if you do it from the beginning. I know this sounds ridiculous. Trust me. Get something, especially if you're going downhill when you do this, get something that you can put on the end of the hose like a, a, a spray nozzle or something like that. But don't put it on yet. Run water through your hose for about 30 seconds. Make sure it's good and full of water. Shut the water off. Put your hose nozzle on it. If it was downhill and all the water ran out, open the hose nozzle. Turn it on till the water's spraying out of the hose nozzle. Close the hose nozzle. Go shut the valve at the hose bib off. Leave it alone. The best place to do this, if you have a spot on your property, is a place where the sun is going to bake that hose for a long time during the day. The longer the hose will be having hot water in it, the better. Leave it for at least two days. Then go ahead, take your open your hose nozzle off, let the hose drain, and coil the hose up. Now, it's up to you what you want to do. I understand some people want to do some kind of smaller coil or a rack or something like that for aesthetics, especially in like a suburban environment, small backyards, things like that. The way I like to do my hoses is I'll stand up by the hose bib side 
pull the hose in, and what makes a circle in a hose is a twist. So you make a circle on the ground. How big? Probably about four to six feet in diameter. Really big circle, all the wraps so it's on top of each other about the same diameter. When you use a reel, you're going back to creating memory, and the, the further back on the hose, the smaller the diameter of the of the the, the loop, and then further out the bigger. That's why when you start unwinding a hose, the first half of the hose is no big deal. It doesn't have a lot of problems, um, but when you get down to that last bit of it, that's where it's all kinky. Well, when you put it on a reel, you're doing the same thing. So I prefer to just lay it on the ground. And if you use a quality hose like Gilmore's hoses, they're not going to rot or anything because they're laying on the ground. And if you do it from the back end, so you're pulling it as you do it, when you go to pick it up, the end is always there. You can just walk out with it. It won't kink. It won't wrap up. It won't do anything. If you want to do something to more do like hose management, get a, a kind of a rack or build a rack that the hose hangs on a wall or hangs on a fence and use big loops and let it hang. It's going to be much better than putting it in one of those rollers or something like that. Uh, as far as maintenance, if you live where you don't use your hoses in winter, there's no good reason to not disconnect them and bring them in the house. I just leave my hoses out. And again, I'm back to frugal versus cheap. When I bought hoses other than Gilmore hoses and you left them out, sooner or later they would dry, rot, and break. I have had my oldest Gilmore for five years, and there's nothing wrong with it. I also recommend that you do keep around some menders so you know, like an end gets broken or something, so you can fix it. If you use a Gilmore, you probably won't need one uh, ever because they'll never go bad on you. I've had, again, fittings on hoses go bad, and it's always been the cheap hoses that it happens to. Um, but even a good hose, you know, your, your wife might run over it with a lawnmower or something, I'm just saying, so you might need a mender, so keep some menders. Nelson makes the ones I recommend that are available on Amazon. They're made out of metal. If you ever use one and put it on, you'll never have to put another one on because it won't fail unless somebody runs over with a lawnmower. Uh, but that's, that's about it. If you do that with your hoses, you'll have a, a much better relationship with your hose, and we all want a positive hose relationship. Uh, as far as my recommendation, again, Gilmore is the brand I recommend. I'll put a link in the show notes to my review on Gilmore Hoses. Next up, let's talk about the government shutdown, probably a bit differently than you're hearing about it on your TV. We are going to talk about the workers affected by it, but we're going to talk about what they can do instead of whining, crying, bitch on our television sets. So what sparked this is John and Moore Park, who's like a one-man research team for TSP, sent me an article called From Federal Worker to Uber Driver, Odd Jobs to Make Ends Meet in the Shutdown. And a little, uh, little snippet out of the article is furloughed government employees desperate for income have become unlikely errants into America's gig economy, substitute teaching, babysitting, delivering food, driving Uber, etc. Um, I'm not going to read the article for you. And before I dig into my response to this, I wanted to read an actual email from an actual uh, federal employee who is actually currently furloughed that says, I'm a jerk! Yep, Jack is a jerk yet again. And is it because I said federal workers need to get off their ass and do something or have a plan B or whatever? No, it's because, well, he listens to TSP, and while he's furloughed, he's got some time off. Um, Hi, Jack, just had to say how big of a jerk you are. Why well, I'm better off for it. I'm one of the non-essential feds in the D.C. area, and things that have been able to put in place over the last several years aren't able to us to get by, for now at least. We have... Uh, other backup plans, just in case, a lot of thanks to you. Uh, could have been where there was nothing very much to look forward to in this situation. The politicians have told us we're on our own. Uh, what else is new? 
the government will stop my work, but not their ability to take my son, who is registered for the draft last month. Uh, I have an LLC set up for when things like Green's businesses, eBay, and now it has Uber and other share economy attachments to it. Planning to finally rent out one of the rooms, which we're always putting off. I don't know what it'll be like around here if folks continue to miss paychecks, but I'm planning to bug out just in case. Uh, the way money flows here will eventually be fed more, by a lot more than just the federal workers. In the meantime, I'm also trying to market into headhunting companies to find part-time work for myself and the people that I used to work with. Onward and upward, peace. Tony in Virginia. Uh, Tony, awesome. So, again, back to uh, the article from John and Moore Park. Um, people are going out and finding these opportunities and gigs. And I, I wonder how many federal workers, if the shutdown were to go, let's say, another month, we would actually have an indirect downsizing Because when they call them back, they might go, well, you know, I really don't want to do this ever again. And I found something that makes me more happy and productive now, so no, I'm not coming back. I think a lot of them will go back. I think a lot of them won't learn anything from this. But I think that the real lesson here is we all need a plan B if we are employees, all of us. And every year, hundreds of thousands of people lose jobs. They lose jobs completely, as in your services are no longer required. They lose jobs in the form of layoffs. We don't know when we're going to be calling you back. Times are tough. We are laying you off. Um, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. And what federal workers will say is, well, we don't have unemployment insurance. Well, need, you need to make your ass some unemployment insurance, don't you? I mean, the reality is federal workers in general are paid better than people that do the same type of work in the private sector or even in state government positions. Federal workers are generally paid better. Now, I want to be fair to federal workers. Not all federal workers are highly paid. Not everybody who works for the federal government is making hundred grand or two hundred grand a year. A lot of them are, but a lot of them aren't. TSA is all federally employed. These guys make $14 to $20 an hour. Now, $20 an hour isn't bad money, but... They start out around $14, $15 bucks an hour. This day and age, if you're making $14, $15 an hour, you're pretty much living paycheck to paycheck. But so are millions of other Americans that have to deal with it. You're the one that chose a career in, in, in feeling people up, right? You need to have a plan B. And the person that says, well, I work at Walmart and make $12 an hour or whatever, and it's hard. It's hard. It's hard for everybody. But everybody needs a plan B. Now, this thing on Uber... Uh, Uber, Amazon delivery, stuff like this. A lot of those things do require some level of a background check and what have you. If that's going to be part of your plan B, you might want to go ahead and knock that out and do a little bit of work for them here and there. It'll give you some extra money, tell you whether or not it's really going to work for you, that type of thing. That way, when it's your plan B, you're ready to go. Also, the more stuff like this happens, the more people do stuff like that, the more competition there is. You may even get to some areas where we don't need any more people for some of these side gig things. So I think that we should all be getting our side hustle on at least a little bit and having a plan and knowing what to do and saving a little extra money. And if nothing else, if nothing else, every time you get paid, get a $10 bill and stick it in a jar. Now, I know that's only about $500 a year, but it's $500 every year otherwise you wouldn't have had. And that's I said if nothing else. And there should be some something else's. But the real message from the federal government shutdown is not, oh, Trump's mean, oh, the Democrats are stupid. It's all bullshit. It doesn't matter why. 
What do we say about natural disasters? What do we say about preparing to do without systems of support? In the end, we don't prepare for storms. We don't prepare for a pandemic. We don't prepare for a fire. We prepare to do without systems of support because it doesn't matter that your system of support is not there. It just matters why it's not there. It just matters that it's not there. Additionally, what do we teach in our survival tenets here? That the most likely disaster to happen to you affects the least number of people. In this case, it's 800,000 people, but compared to the rest of the United States, it's pretty low. It's pretty low. Again, it's a job loss. The number one thing we teach you to prepare for is a job loss. Well, you think maybe the folks that are brilliant enough to be employed by the federal government would be doing that. And this is why my sympathy is not non-existent, but it's limited. And then one more time, if you are a federal worker, you should be getting paid through your federal credit union. If you do that, right now, you can be taking interest-free loans for money that you're going to get back paid for. And if you're, if you're scared that you might not, then you only borrow, let's say, half or 25%. In fact, what you could do, what you could do, is figure out what would I be getting if I had that fancy unemployment insurance. You'll find out it ain't that much and borrow that much. And self-insure yourself by having zero interest loads through your credit union. Well, I didn't do that. You know, some people don't have small smoking detectors in their house. And their house burns down when the fire could have been put out quickly. If you, there, there's a reality that actions have consequences and inactions have consequences. It's time to join the real world, grow up like the rest of everybody else, and realize good, bad shit happens to good people, and you need to be prepared to deal with it. Moving on. This comes from Matthew at the Family Friendly Farm. He says, please comment on the value and trade-offs of focus and diversity and in income streams. Details, you've spent a lot of time recently discussing the value of having a side hustle to supplement income. Then at Thursday's show, you commented that you can make more money focused on one thing rather than spreading your energy over many endeavors around minute 29. It seems to me that both focus on diversity, uh, focus and diversity are important and a balanced approach should be considered. I've struggled with this question on my small farm for years. It can be, I can be more efficient and make more return on my labor focusing my efforts. However, when I make mistakes on my main enterprise, go through rough time, The diversity helps me keep afloat mentally and financially. Thanks for your great podcast. I listen almost every day while milking my cows. Let's talk about what I mean here. So first of all, one thing is usually best. As an entrepreneur. So side hustles versus focusing on one thing, we're in two different worlds. The side hustle is for the person that has a job. And they don't have the time to be in a full-time business. So they start up a side hustle, and that side hustle can either transition into a full-time business or provide extra money or help them figure out what they really want to do with their life. So we're going to have diversity if we're doing a side hustle. In most instances, probably one or two side hustles is better than 12. You know, it, it just is. Now, I can see people in the gig economy saying, well, my side hustle is anything that lets me go out and do something for money that it's on a platform. In other words, if you whether you're dog sitting, pet walking, giving somebody a ride, delivering somebody a cheeseburger, or giving somebody their Amazon package, it's kind of all the same thing. And so that's just what's available today. That would be a good approach. When I'm talking about narrowing down and doing one thing, and you have diversity of income streams, 
those are not mutually exclusive. If you're on a farm and you're milking cows and you're selling milk, for instance, the best thing you can probably do to get more income streams in is what else can your farm do? What else can you sell to your existing customer? Including what can you sell to your existing customer where you don't have to do diddly dick other than acquire it? If you have customers, and I don't know what they're buying for you, let's say they're buying raw milk. What do you know about them? What do you know about them? They're concerned about their health. They want to know where their food comes from, etc. Agnosium. Look around. If I were you, if I wanted another income stream, I would look around and I would talk to my customers. What do you want that you can't get? What do you want that's you can get it, but it's kind of far away? What is that? And then I would find somebody doing that. And then I would talk to all my customers that are my regular customers and say, I'm going to have this thing available for this much money next week. How many of you guys want it? And then once you get that rolling regular, it's a single thing. And it's something you can have a kid run over and pick up for you. You know, if you need, if you need to have a person, uh, instead of outsourcing, you're out tasking. You know, I need a kid going next door. I need a kid once a week to go pick some up and bring it over. I'll pay you 10 bucks. It's side money and it's easy. You ain't got to do anything except pick it up and bring it here. Now you just sell that to your existing customer base. This is one of the ways John Dowie of Dowie Farms has been able to grow his microgreen business. You start selling to chefs, you say, hey, would you like really great maple syrup? Yeah, I'm not going out tapping maple trees. He also finds a guy that makes really great maple syrup. Now they can add local maple syrup to their menu. All he's got to do is just add it to the order. So multiple income streams, let's say my podcast. I'm still focusing on one thing when I added Amazon reviews to the website. It's still one thing. It's the podcast that drives the traffic that makes those work. I didn't go off and do it on some island way over here and ignore this incredible media reach that I have. Hey, I have an item of the day. Go check it out, right? That, that is stacking income streams into a single enterprise. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have multiple enterprises. Some of the enterprises that lend themselves to additional things are things like real estate. Uh, the, the person that wrote in about the government shutdown, we're going to rent a room out. Getting into a situation where you can rent housing and make money, if you do it right, if you screen your tenants tightly, if you're in the right market, it can be something you do very little for. And it can provide you incredible tax benefits as you take an appreciating, appreciating asset, in other words, it gets to be worth more money, that somebody else is paying for, And on paper, you depreciate it and create a phantom expense that the IRS is totally okay with because it was their idea in the first place. So there are places where going into that diversity makes sense. But if it's truly another independent business, it will, it will almost inevitably end up the two of them combined will give you less long-term than one focused on. Because if nothing else, the, you're going to allow... Even if you wouldn't grow the first business, it's probably going to start contracting as you're not doing enough to take care of customers. So um, I think you have to take that and then apply it, Jeet Kune Do it, into your individual circumstances. Because uh, I don't know everything about you, your life, your abilities, etc. So you have to figure out how that works for you. But that's what I mean when I say it. Good question. Let's take another one. Um, this, says, uh, this is from Justin. Justin says... Uh, What plants would you grow that may be considered threatened 
to no longer be available in your state in the future. Details, Indiana appears to be banning a list of new invasive species, including autumn olive. Fortunately, I listened to your show, and I have some excellent nitrogen fixers on my property. What I would like to know, are there any others you would recommend getting before the government banhammer comes to my state? Thanks for all you do. List below, and there's a big, long list that I'm not going to read, but it includes things like Mora Alba, which is white mulberry, which makes no sense at all why that would be banned. Uh, it just shows me more that Illinois is just completely and totally useless. Um, let me explain something, though. If you own this stuff and you have it planted on your property before the ban, what you're supposed to do if you follow all the rules is cut it down, get rid of it, eradicate it, and no longer propagate it or allow it to exist. So you you got to realize that in this type of a thing, unless you're running a commercial farm and running a nursery or something like that, the, the, the odds that you're going to be bothered or pestered, unless you're stupid and talk a lot about it, are pretty low. And if you ban something like autumn olive, that doesn't mean you can't get it. Now, it does mean that nobody's going to ship it to you in Indiana, but it doesn't mean that you can't get it. It doesn't even mean that nobody will ship it to you in Indiana. It's highly likely there's some guy running a side hustle on eBay that's running an unlicensed nursery or something like that or doing wild harvest that doesn't know, let alone care, that it's not supposed to go there, and he's just going to ship it to you anyway. All right, so that's that's just something to keep in your mind. As far as what to grow, I don't necessarily think we should be growing invasive or banned or whatever species plants just because the government said we can't. I think you should look at the plants that make the most sense for your ecosystem and grow those. And I think you should realize a lot of times the supposed invasive species uh, problem is not an invasive species problem. For instance, in Texas, while not banned, the state of Texas discourages the planting of autumn olive. And this is the state's actual logical reasoning that they put down in paper as to why. It so improves the fertility of soils that some native plants that are adapted to infertile fertile soils stop growing. As though we have a lack of unfertile soil. This is just preposterous. This is, and remember, how did autumn olive become a problem in the first place? All the states all over the place decided it was a really great plant and planted it along the highways in ma massive, absolutely massive numbers. And some guy's backyard is not the reason that autumn olive is a problem. And even where they say it's a problem, it's just not a problem usually. I do think we need to be responsible with any type of plant that can actually be a problem. Aquatic plants especially can be a problem. But if you have a, a, a Rubbermaid tub, aquaponics-based system with some water hyacinth floating around in it, it's not going to end up five miles down the road in the lake causing a problem. And usually the states that say, well, we're banning this plant, the plant's already there. It's already all over the place. They have no plan to get rid of it. And I would always fall back on, I don't know, it just showed up. You said it was invasive. Boy, you're right. As far as the plants, I don't have any specific um, recommendations here. Some of the stuff that uh, that's on this list, like musk thistle, uh, I, I don't think most people would try to, to plant that on purpose. Uh, some of the stuff that's there, like Chinese yam, uh, can't even overwinter in Indiana, so I don't know why they're worried about it. Um White mulberry, I, I, if, you, if you wanted anything out of the list that I'm looking at, just to try to help you individually, uh, white mulberry, except um, 
I think that most of the Mora Alba, rather than Morris Ruba species, so the native mulberries, Morris Ruba, red mulberry, uh, I, I think you're going to find that most of them probably can't overwinter in Indiana anyway. There might be a couple. Now, Morris Alba's white mulberry is not referring to the berries. It's referring to the tree itself. So many Morris Alba white mulberries produce black mulberries or red mulberries or purple mulberries, whatever you want to call it. Um, but if, if, there is a, if there is a Morris Alba species that you would want to have around um, on your property, uh, that would be the one out of your entire list that, that seems like it has the, the best beneficial um, reasoning, you know, the biggest benefit to having. But I, I do want to point out that one of the things that people should be looking at when they have banned species, plants they can't get, if they are worried about being bothered, harassed, reported, etc., almost inevitably there is something that's not banned that will fill the role. So if you wanted to plant um, autumn olive um, and it was banned where you live, um, in fact, <laughs> they don't even have the Latin name on the autumn olive, right? Anyway, um, <laughs> The, the, the you could grow something else in the same genus, like Eliagnus is the genus there, and you could grow um, gummies, which are actually a much higher food value plant. They look a lot like autumn olive, but the berries are about three times, four times as big. They taste about the same, but there's more of them, so you get more flavor per berry, uh, and, and they didn't ban those yet anyway. So... Um, If you look at white mulberry, for instance, it's probably the case anyway that a native mulberry species, the Morris rubus species, would do better in your climate anyway. So also always look at, you know, how can I remember the words of Jeff Lawton, right? If, if the more restrictions there are in a design, the better the designer is, the more elegant the design will be. So we should always be trying to use native species or species that are native adapted when we can Uh, rather than always trying to be so you know exotic, just because that means those plants are going to do better for us. Uh, next up, I had a guy ask me a question. His name's Dan, and he was asking, his initial question was, um, would, would it ever make sense to use something like a, a straight-up commercial fertilizer, a 500, just huge nitrogen bang, or a 10-10-10 to save, would, would have a time and place? And, and my answer to that question is, it might. But probably not here. Here's the situation. He says he has heavy red clay soil. He has a huge amount of wood chips. He uses them for mulch regularly. Uh, he'd like to use some as a soil amendment during planting to help break up the clay. However, the problem of the wood chips acting as an N2 sink is probably mostly overrated. I expect a heavy application during planting would cause an issue. I'm considering a light application of 500 to the piles of wood chips to allow them to age for six months to avoid burning plants and killing beneficial organisms. I think this would lessen N2 robbing effect and allow me to use them as a soil amendment. I know there's a shortcut, uh, and permaculture purists would cringe. I never use chemical herbicides or pesticides. I think chemical fertilizer is more of a cheat. I'd appreciate your thoughts you have, and thanks for all you do, Dan. Well, first of all, Dan, if you take wood chips and pile them up with a bunch of NPK chemical fertilizer and give them a bunch of nitrogen, they're going to start bonding with that nitrogen, and it's going to be a lot like taking wood chips and mixing them up with green leaves. You're going to make compost. 
and you're not going to make the best compost you can. So if you were going to wait six months to use them anyway, you can just make compost. Just get yourself a bunch of green leaves and mix them at a ratio of about, you know, two parts green leaves to one part wood chips and just leave that. We're going to be talking about compost here in a minute anyway. And, and you know, you can either turn it and do it fast or leave it alone let it do it slow. And you're going to get compost. And you're going to have, it's going to be a woody compost. It's going to have a lot of chunks of wood and stuff, but it's going to be plenty. So I, I wouldn't necessarily do that. Now, the next thing. I don't care if you put a foot of, of wood chips down on the ground as a mulch or a quarter inch. The amount of nitrogen they're going to take from their contact with the soil is about the same. Because the wood chip two inches up the pile can't get any nitrogen out of the soil. Only the point where the wood chips contact the soil. This is a myth. It's a myth that needs to die, die, die die. From now on, folks, listen to me. If you ever hear somebody to tell you not to use wood chips because they're rob nitrogen, then you need to have the circus music deep, 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 just play in your head while they talk. Don't even bother arguing with them and just go on about your life and pretend they don't exist. Pretend those words don't exist. It's not a thing. You could take this area, and I, I got some more information. There's about a quarter acre garden and a few hundred feet of swale. The swale's being done more food foresties. Right now it's only got some support species like black locust and serviceberry. Um, they, they want to, he wants to amend the soil. It's packed, hard, red soil. This is what I would do. I would, for the garden, I know a quarter acre is not a quarter acre square that every inch of it is going to be planted. There's rows and spaces in between. Where you're going to plant. I would go get, especially, and I'll talk to your feed store, see if they have some feed that's gone bad that they need to get rid of cheap or whatever, like dirt cheap. I don't care if it's GMO for this purpose. It's not going to matter. And I would scatter feed. If it was a small garden, if you were doing five 25-by-four-foot beds, I'd put it a freaking inch deep. But I would scatter lightly chicken feed, whatever you can get, the cheapest shit you can get. And then I would get horticultural dry molasses. The stuff's cheap too. And I would get a, you know, a cup or something and I would sift it wherever your garden beds are going to be. And I would just do that a light coat. Like you're putting salt and pepper on a giant meatloaf, about that much. And then I would put about four to six inches of wood chips on top of that and step back and do nothing. And let it sit, let those wood chips sit there for six months instead of in a pile over by the fence for six months. When you pull that back and go to planting it, you'll be able to stick your arm down in it to your wrist at least. A year into it, if you just keep doing that, you'll be able to stick your arm down in that soil to your elbow. I know it doesn't make any sense because it's clay. Keep it covered, and when you what you're doing is you're going to attract worms. That's why we're using the chicken feed. They're going to come in there, they're going to live in there, and they're going to create an ecosystem in there. I would do a similar approach to your swells, though you probably can't use as much, but you don't need as much material. But just the wood, if you do nothing but throw wood chips down, as thick as possible, you will, you will, you will blow yourself away with what it will do to your soil. There's a video that in general I don't like because it's too much, like they make a God thing out of science. And you can have whatever faith you want, but it, osmosis is not a miracle. It's a scientific fact, right? Um, but it's, it's called the Back to Eden Garden. And if you look at what this guy does, all he uses is compost and wood chips. And it works for everybody that tries it. And this whole Rob Nitrogen thing, it's got to go. It's got to go away. 
We got to stop talking about it. And then the other thing we have to understand with this whole robbing of nitrogen thing, when wood chips do bond with nitrogen that's in soil, it doesn't go away. The wood chips break down in, in, the, in the carbon cycle and release slowly the nitrogen back into the soil. So all I would do is that. Now, for your garden, you may want to use, because this, this clay soil probably, and it takes a while for biology to get doing its thing, and early in the season, um, even when you've, got, you've remediated the soil and it's in good shape, it's cold. Uh, a lot of times these soils that we think of don't have enough nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium or whatever. they got plenty of it. Plants just can't get to it. And until all the little beneficial nematodes and all the little soil organisms are doing their thing, and you're getting this exudate from the plant back to the microorganism, until that happens, um, it don't matter how much is in there, a plant can't get it. So good organic fertilizer, you know, Dr. Earth, but any good organic fertilizer. You know, uh, I don't care if you go down to Home Depot and look for a big bag of organic fertilizer, and you only need a little bit. Especially when you're doing plants, like if you're doing tomatoes or whatever, you dig a hole, put a pinch of that in there. Your trees don't, you don't usually need to fertilize trees at all. If you're going to fertilize trees at all, scatter your nutrient kind of out by the drip line on the surface and just cover it with mulch. If you're going to do wood mulch on your swell berms where trees are, what you want is for about six inches around the base of the tree at least, more like a foot, you don't want wood chips there. You don't want wood chips up against your trunk. You get wood on wood, and one side of the wood's rotting. It can rot away the cambium and kill your trees. It can certainly make it harder for The best thing for trees directly underneath them is nothing. I know we all want to mulch everything, but it, it right underneath them. So when you think of the way most people mulch a tree, you go way out, and then the mulch is thin, and then it comes up, and the deepest part is by the trunk. It's exactly backwards. It should be scattering and nothing by the trunk, and it should get thicker as it goes out to the drip line. Uh, and, and that's the approach I would take here. Dan, if I, if I didn't understand something, if you want more information, get with me. We'll do follow-up on it. Let's move on for now. It says, uh, this is from Daniel, and Daniel says, Do you have any recommendation on how to calculate whether it's better to buy a brand-new car with a warranty or buy a used car with a lower price and no warranty? I'm considering a project manager job that would have me driving upwards of 30,000 miles a year. Due to the age of our cars, I'm fine with now. I will need to seriously consider getting a different vehicle. Do you have any recommendations on how I should calculate my cost for maintenance for this? Obviously, a brand-new car will have a warranty, whereas you may or may not get uh, that with a use, depending on where you buy that from. Thanks, Daniel. Okay, so there's some stuff we got to think about in this, in this scenario that are not directly car-related. Is your co company giving you any money for this? Are they going to give you a car allowance? If your company's going to give you a car allowance, and that car allowance is 500 bucks a month, for instance, uh, then what I, and, 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 a, and a gas card, and, and in that instance, you're probably going to have to do all your maintenance yourself, but they're going to give you that $500 a month. Then I would go out and buy the best damn car I can get for $500 a month. Actually, I'm going to buy the best car I can get for about $350 to $400 a month for my needs. And I'm going to take the extra money from that car allowance every year or every month, and I'm going to put it in its own special box. It's the car box. And if we ever go to a new job or something, we're not in that situation anymore, and all that money, that box is full of money, then we can have that money and do something with it. 
But as long as we're working there, we're going to build that up into an insurance policy. And if it gets up to a couple thousand bucks, and you think that's enough of an insurance policy, then you can take their other money and invest it somewhere else. Save it somewhere else. Go have a, a freaking dinner out once a month on the company, whatever you want. So many of jobs like you described to me, they're going to come with that car allowance. If I'm getting the car paid for by the company, then that's the approach that I'm going to take. Um, the downside is plan B if you lose your job, that type of thing. So that's why I'm not going to max out the car allowance here. If there is no car allowance, what that absolutely means, and you may be able to do this anyway, is massive tax deduction. The only way that you can drive 30,000 miles a year for a job is for that job to require the driving. And if you have an allowance, you may not be able to deduct those miles. You may. It all depends on how it gets structured. But if you have a car allowance, usually it's, it's not taxed. So if you have no car allowance, then it's all out-of-pocket expense. So now that I don't know because I don't pay attention, but I think it's over 50 cents a mile. So you're probably not able to deduct all 30,000 of those miles, But let's, let's factor something in here and figure out how much of a tax deduction that is. If, say, half of it is deductible, um, I think I just looked it up. The, uh, the new business mileage deduction for 2019, 58 cents. So on 15,000 miles, that's $8,700 deducted from your taxes. If you, your effective tax rate is 20%, 8,720%, 10% twice, $1,740 a year. Back in your pocket from your taxes. That's a number to look at as well. Because that can be put toward you know, the, offsetting the cost of the car. So these are all factors to take into consideration. My, my gut is, though, that it may very well be that you're better off with a, a good quality, mid-range mile uh, used vehicle here. Because you're going to make the vehicle very quickly worthless. I don't, I don't think, you can talk to different dealers and find out, but I don't think a lease is going to work well for you here. Because if you lease a car for three years and you bring about 90,000 miles on it, it has been massively devalued. Still, you might want to look at something like a Nissan Ultima or something like that. Go talk to a dealership, explain your situation, and figure that, you know, run the numbers. Um, but if you have a used vehicle... You put money aside to make sure that you're going to be okay, you know, um, if you have a repair need. Um, you, you've already let somebody else take a huge depreciation hit because basically you're going to drive this car into the ground. And the way you have to look at it, this is a tool to work with, and that's how you have to structure it. And I would do whatever you need. Talk to your CPA. If you don't have a CPA, get a freaking CPA and find out, what do I do to make this vehicle phantomly dispose of as much of my income as possible. And, you know, again, if you're, if you're talking 30,000 miles of actual business, um, what, what would that be? Uh, 17 grand. 17,000 bucks in, 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 in deduction. That's taking $17,000 off your income, and it don't cost you anywhere near that much. So you got to look at this as a bigger thing than just which one you should do. Whatever you buy, what I'm going to want to buy is the vehicle that costs me the least 
that has the lowest cost of repair and maintenance and the most reliability in the class that I can look at in this situation. Um, that, that's probably the best way to go. The other one is you can look at higher-end vehicles, depending on your budget, and find high-end vehicles that, that, that have high resale value, even with close to 100,000 miles on them, and look at replacing your car every three years and divesting as much income with that car loss as you possibly can. Talk to your CPA about that. But you're looking for reliability here because beyond beyond the, the concept of the cost of repair is the inconvenience of being stranded when you're doing that much travel. So, so those are the, the ways I would look at this to come up with the best answer for your needs. But you, you really may want to discuss high mileage leases. With, uh, with, you know, some, especially I'm thinking Nissan, Toyota, um, those are probably good, but Subaru. Uh, and then the other thing is, of course, look at, look for cars with high mileage in this situation. Um, the more you're deducting and the less you're spending in gas, because if you're doing mileage deduction, you're not deducting your gas. So, and if you want to send me any more information here that might make me be able to do a better analysis for you, do you have a car allowance? Are they giving you a gas card? Those types of things are actually really important here. Uh, how much of that mileage is actually uh, business, legitimate business that you can deduct based on what the government says and being creative about how you make that happen? Generally speaking, when you use business deductions with employment uh, mileage, driving to the first place that you do your first task is not deductible. So if you have to leave your home and drive 55 miles to your first place, then that 55 miles doesn't come off. But if you stop anywhere and do anything, it does. I'll let you figure that out. If I'm not clear enough, email me, and I'll tell you some ideas. Uh, let's take another one. Uh, next up, I'm going to go real quick because I don't have a lot of experience with doing it with fertilizers, but this is from Oliver in Germany. He said, can you tell us what would be the best fertilizer for a hydroponic mixed vegetable culture? And basically, Oliver has set up an aquaponic system without fish. He's done that so he doesn't have to explain to his wife why they're buying fish or why they have fish. And he sent me a link to a product on Amazon uh, that is really a, a hydroponics uh, product with three different products in it. And I don't know any more than I just told you because it's in German and I can't read it. So I don't know what it actually is. But here's the good news. You can do, and he wants to do peppers and tomatoes and stuff like that in an ebb and flow bed. You can do fishless aquaponics really, really easy. A good product like a good compost tea alone will do a lot for you. And you can get away with some things that are difficult, not impossible, but difficult uh, when you're dealing with fish. Because if you dose iron, for instance, into your fish tanks, you can overdose iron for your fish. It can cause problems or uh, any other nutrient or mineral you can, you can tend to overdose. So you, you can just look at your plants and if they, you think they need something, you can use a calcium, magnesium. You, know, you always want to use calcium and magnesium and iron and zinc together. Not all four. What I mean by you need, if you want to do calcium, you need magnesium. And if you need iron, you need, you, you, uh, you need zinc. So you can use products like that. Personally, to make your life easy, what I would do is I would just use a broad-spectrum hydroponics fertilizer. There's just one thing you need to know when you're doing ebb and flow with hydroponics. That's why I call it fishless aquaponics instead of, uh, instead of uh, hydroponics. Hydroponics does not in incorporate ebb and flow beds. 
And one of the issues with ebb and flow beds is they do have a tendency to actually remove a lot of additional nutrient because of the of, of basically off-gassing it. And they, while it's a great thing when you're trying to keep fish alive, um, it's not as it, it will use up supplemental fertilizers faster uh, than using something like a uh, a fish where they're constantly replacing it by pooping again, right? Uh, or in a hydroponic system, we're basically growing in water, and we're just basically circulating the water a little bit, but we're not really um, aerosoling it ever. So you might need to use a little bit more. But I've seen people do fishless aquaponics and just basically take, you know, once every two days, put a small handful of fish food in the tank and let it rot. And uh, Rob Bob uh, Rob Bob's uh, farm, aquaponics farm in uh, in Australia, he's a great YouTuber, Rob Bob, just check him out. He has uh, set an aquaponics system up for his parents, and they do a little bit of liquid fertilizer and a little pinch of fish food every week. For maintenance, I think he actually does it for me. He goes by and does that because it takes five seconds. Um, and and that, that's been growing great for them. So you can try all of these different approaches, but I don't, I don't have a specific product recommendation for hydroponics fertilizer. Maybe somebody can come by that does hydro and make some recommendations for some specific products in the comments of today's episode. Um, next, I've had a question for John, and John kicked it back and said, you take this. It's below my pay grade, man. You can handle it. Um, the question was, what are DRIPS, Dividend Reinvestment Programs, on 2363? I heard you mention DRIPS. I thought I'd heard investments before. What are they? What do you look for in a DRIP? Do you invest in DRIPS? What are the tax consequences of investment in DRIPS? Uh, how do you find them, Mike, from Kentucky? So DRIPS are going to fall under, um, as far as tax consequences, the same as any dividend-producing stock. So it's, 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 it's interest in dividends type income, so it is capital gains. So it's going to go on your tax form that way, and it's going to get taxed at that rate, which is fairly low compared to uh, employment income. At least it used to be. Now it's pretty close to the same with the tax cuts. Um, but it's, it, it's not something really to worry about. You're probably not going to do drips in a, uh, like a tax-deferred account, like an IRA or a 401 or something like that, because of how you set them up. Now, a lot of your mutual funds effectively act like a drip. And what that means is that this mutual fund, you get dividends paid out by the stocks within the fund that are dividend producers, and they get reinvested, and you just get more of those shares of that ETF or that, that, you know, that, that mutual fund, whatever it is. That's great. That's fine. It's not really what people are talking about when they're talking about with a drip. Uh, a drip is generally done in a totally different situation uh, where you have a direct account basically that's set up with the the entity so for instance two drips that we used for my son with money that was given to him by relatives was blocks of money that were too big just leave around doing nothing were exxon and mcdonald's and the way these work is you go directly to the company and buy stock and you can just put in you know available drip investment programs on google and you'll find all kinds of them and you avoid brokerage fees and stuff like that. And what happens is you, let's say, buy $1,000 worth of McDonald's stock. And I don't know what McDonald's trades for, but let's say it gets you 20 shares. It's at 50 bucks. And then every quarter, 
when the dividends are paid out, instead of sending you a, a check for the dividends, they add those dividends as fractional shares of stock to what you're already holding. And it builds like that. And, you know, over 10 years, generally speaking, these are from high-quality blue-chip dividend producers. You know, 7 to 10 years, it's going to double in value. And it's very passive, and it's very low risk, because the type of stocks you're going to invest in for a drip are those blue chips that produce dividends that have been around forever and a day. And I don't care what happens with the recession, nobody's going to give up their Big Macs. Uh, it's not a, a very high return investment, and it can go down in value, but it constantly goes up in the quantity that you're holding, and it compounds over time. And it's really good for things like you're going to put some money away for a kid. We're not talking about tens of thousands of dollars. We got $1,500 bucks, uh, that came in, and we're going to set that aside, and we're going to just put it on the shelf and forget about it. And you'll get a statement every quarter, and it'll tell you how it's growing and things like that. When Matthew got older and we were ready to get him set up with his own financial management, immediately the money that was in those went into more you know, investment-type vehicles instead of individual stocks. I don't hate them, but I don't love them because I don't really tend to like low amounts of money in individual stocks. You've put too much risk in one basket while you have too little bit of money to diversify. So I prefer to use things like mutual funds or ETFs when people are investing those small quantities. I did not know as much as I know now 25 years ago, obviously. So we used them for my son, and I have to say they, they did well for what they're supposed to do. Um, That's what they are, that's how they work, and it's up to you whether they work for you or not. Um, next up, Will asked me, would it be worth taking a look at property that's being sold by the owner? I stumbled across a nice piece of property of 4.8 acres. The house looks like it needs updating, but other than that, it's livable. Asking price is reasonable, 79.5, uh, which I hope I can get them to come down. This being my first house, I'm not sure if it's worth it to try to buy from the seller. Um, I don't think I mentioned this in the uh, intro to today's show because it got in here by accident. Uh, I think it's because I wanted to answer it, and I threw it in my queued up folder last week and forgot about it. Um, the answer to buying a home from an owner, and actually Will wrote me back since then and said he found out that the township that this is in has a ban on chickens, so he's not going to be moving there anyway. Uh, and I came up with an interesting idea, and this is why I threw it in the folder. I remember now. I said, maybe I, every time that you guys are out there shopping for property, uh, find a house that you were very interested in, and you find out about an ordinance or a restriction that makes the house go on the no-go list, just, just fire off a quick letter to like the councilman or whatever for that area and say, I was, I was thinking about buying a house in your area and I want you to know I have this job and pay my taxes and I contribute to my community and whatever. You sell yourself as a really great guy, but I'm not coming because you don't believe in freedom uh, of a man to own a few chickens and self-sufficiency is really important to my family. So regrettably, I will be not making an offer and becoming part of your tax base. Just just an interesting little stabs because sometimes those types of things work better than pickets and stuff like that. But um, on, on another note, there is nothing wrong with buying a property from somebody doing their own sales. Real estate agents are not necessary for either party to buy or sell property. They're really not um, at all. The biggest thing that using a real estate agent does for you is takes off the plate showing the house. So all you got to do is beat feet and get out of the way, and the real estate agent brings people by and shows them the house. That's that's the biggest thing. Mo I know there's some good ones, but most real estate agents, that's the only value they bring to it. You can even do multiple listing without a real estate agent. You can do that. So 
You, you know, I, I, I generally do use agents, and I generally have to do a big portion of their job for them because when creative situations come up, I get up creative with negotiating, and I save lots of money. And they're not really good at that, and they're always scared they're going to lose the deal, and they want their commission. So I, I've beat up on them before, so I'm not going to do it today, but just there's no need. There's no reason to, 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 to not buy from somebody that has no agent and you don't have an agent. You can get into some situations, though, where you've retained somebody as a buyer's agent. If you, are, you decide you're going to buy a property without them, they did not show it to you. It's for sale by owner directly. Fire your buyer's agent before you transact the transaction. It's much more difficult for them to do anything about it than if you retain them to sell for you and you sold out from underneath them. But the way I look at it, I'm going to get some butthurt real estate agents emailing me today. If I'm a buyer and I found my own places for sale by owner and you didn't do anything to help me find that house, then I don't need you now. And there's no reason I should give you 3% to 6% or whatever it is of, of the, the sale value because now it's going to cost me. And there's just no, no benefit there. And most of them aren't going to want to show that house because they really can't get commission on that in the first place. So I would just tell them I don't need your services anymore. Um, and just to make things clean. I don't even, again, I don't even think it would matter. Because if it's not a listed house, if it's directly for sale only, and that guy doesn't want an agent, I don't think your buyer's agent gets any claim to it whatsoever. Um, so the big concerns I have when you're buying from a person that's a direct seller Number one, there is a lot to the real estate process, and if you've never bought a house before, you're not aware of it. Um, now, if you're going to have a mortgage, they're going to make you do most of it like appraisals and inspections and stuff like that anyway. But if you've been through it with an agent once, you know the process and you know what to do on your end to protect yourself. The other thing, though, is a lot of times when people get into these situations and they're buying a property from a, a direct sale, Maybe they've been really good little ants and they've saved up a bunch of money and they're going to pay cash. I don't care what your source of financing is. Never buy a house without an appraisal. It's the best 500 bucks you'll ever spend. So make sure you, you, t you cross your eyes and you dot your eyes and cross your T's and make sure you get an appraisal. If you, if you, and this is like a big thing. I don't care if it's agents involved or not. If you do not, um, need to go to the bank, and they're not going to order an appraisal, you get an appraisal, always infinity. Always infinity. All right. Uh, especially when you see fin uh, uh, situations where it's owner financing, you better really get your ass an appraisal then. Because that's how you end up. It's easy. You don't have to worry about it. Just sign the paper here, and you take the possession of the property, and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, you're sitting on a property that appraises for seventy five grand that you paid $125 for at a higher interest rate to get owner financing. And that might be why the guy was doing it in the first place. And in states like Texas that are trust deed states, basically you miss two payments, he just takes property back. So you got to be careful with stuff like that. But no, I would never stay away from a property just because it's for sale by owner. In fact, I'm very excited because it's going to be easier to negotiate since he's not giving three to six percent up of the sale price. Uh, if he's selling a property, a hundred thousand dollar property, I got three to six thousand dollars to work with there that I rather otherwise would not have. So I, I love the opportunity if it, if it pops up. Next up, I have a question from Daryl. He said, how would you go about sizing a compost pile in this process as an insulator heat source along a north wall of a greenhouse or a hoop house? Specifically, what size compost pile would you think would work best for this, and what gr size grow space could it heat efficiently and for how long? 
Here's a video. It's it's not late breaking, but from the comments, it sounds as if it's been put into practice. Maybe this is only feasible for moderate climates, uh, more than Northeast Zone 5. Look forward to your thoughts, Daryl. Subversive subject to the People's Republic of New York, the vampire state. Uh, tell Dorothy to keep up the good work on Instagram. I'm new to it as well, but love interacting with you two there. Uh, you two saw some of my basil cube and mead pics. Cool, man. Uh, yeah, and guys, if you're not following us on Instagram, consider doing it. You get to see the other side of Jack. Um, this is the way Dorothy sees my life is really what it works out to. And uh, we're doing little videos and stuff like that, little one-minute videos and what have you. Uh, and it's it's a Jack life on Instagram is our Instagram handle. So he sent me this video, and actually I'm kind of jazzed by it. So what this fellow did, and it, it's going to be best for you to just watch the video to fully understand it, is he just took and put tar paper on one wall of his greenhouse. It didn't actually do the north walls, like the east wall or something like that, or the west wall, because uh, it was just a trial. And he put chicken wire around it. And just made a huge pile of leaves. Now, he didn't go make a, a conventional compost pile where we're, we're getting grass clippings and watching our carbon-nitrogen ratio. He just filled it with leaves he got from neighbors. So there's going to be some nitrogen components in there, but it's a, it's, it's a slow-cooked compost. And I would say that pile that he made is probably in the neighborhood of like three cubic yards, maybe four cubic yards of leaves. And I think you got to be in that size to make this work. Let's, I actually think this is a really good idea, and it gives me a couple different ways that it could be improved as, as an idea as well. And I may do some more research on this and come back and do it, a standalone episode on using compost for heating with this kind of a different take. What I've always hated about the idea, just use compost to heat your greenhouse. Oh, great, so I need to take up a huge amount of floor space inside my greenhouse to heat it with a compost pile that when I'm done turning it over 21 days, it's going to stop producing heat. No, not doing that. I want the floor space. You know, so this one moves the compost outside. So he put tar paper on the wall and then he cut a hole down on the floor of the greenhouse at like the bottom of the compost pile and put a screen in front of it so the compost and leaves and all wouldn't fall in. And he took a thermal gun and I'm not talking about digging into the pile, just down there where that vent is. He was getting 85, 90 degree heat out of that vent into a greenhouse. Uh, I think that's enough to keep plants from dying of freezing in a greenhouse, even in New York, considering you build the right size greenhouse, it's well insulated, etc. But his idea was, what if I had done this across the entire back wall, instead of doing a big, thick, insulated wall on the north side, what if I'd done a regular old thin wall and did the whole back wall with this compost and, and let that heat radiate through? And I thought, wow, that's probably, if you can get enough material... It would probably work really, really well. This is the type of compost heat you get out of something like a cold frame, where we dig a hole in the ground, put a glass on top of it that we can lift up during the day so we don't bake our plants. We just make a huge pile of like straw and leaves down in there. We never turn it. That slow compost heat, you know, produces heat you know, in the range of 100 degrees to 120 degrees at the core. Not the 160 degrees that you get when you use, you know, uh, the, the rapid, you know, turn every three day type method. Uh, so it takes, you know, instead of taking 21 days to make compost, it takes four to six months, which is good because we get three to four months worth of heat. Now, this is the idea that I had when I saw this. Number one, on the wall, if it was already built and made out of wood, to keep it from rotting the wood, I would probably use uh, corrugated steel or metal of some kind. If it wasn't already built, I would just build that wall, that area that's going to be in contact 
with corrugated metal because corrugated metal is really good at transferring either heat or cold. So now the whole wall would heat up and radiate heat. That would be one thing I would look at doing there. The other thing I would look at doing is possibly taking something like polytubing and putting a couple coils of polytubing inside the compost pile, then running that tubing around the inside of the greenhouse, create a thermal siphon, which I can't explain exactly how to do it, but it's actually really simple, and that would mean that as water heated up, it would just be pushed into that pipe, it would circulate back around, come back down the other side as it cooled, and go back in, and it would constantly circulate that. And it, it might even be, I don't know, I'm thinking about this, but it might even be the case that, so you got that thermal radiation on one side of the greenhouse, go on the other side of the greenhouse and find like an old cast iron radiator for heating a house, or even something like maybe an old radiator from a car, which generally we use to cool, but it also can produce heat, and run that thermal siphon through that radiator, warming that up and emanating heat out of both sides of the greenhouse. Um, the more you can do of this, the better, but I do think you have to really think When he said he put tar paper on the wall, I'm like, well, that'll work for a season. It's going to be new to replace. You need to think about protecting the, the, you know, the greenhouse itself. Now, if it's greenhouse plastic, you know, not, not film, but like, you know, panels, it's probably fine. I, I don't really know. You'll find out, but you just replace that piece, I guess, if it doesn't work. I know some people say, what if it gets so hot it catches on fire? It's not. This type of composting, again, we're not going to get 160 degree temperatures. We're not going to go fast. This is a slow compost. Um, I think leaves, wood chips would work. I think the biggest challenge is to get enough material. Uh, but watch the video, guys, and here's what I'm thinking about doing. I'm going to send this video to the two engineers on the expert council, Sean Mills and Stephen Harris. I'm going to send them this episode and say, listen to this segment if you don't listen to the whole episode. And then I'm going to hear back from them. We're going to figure out what to do. Maybe they each both do their own segment. Maybe they do a combined segment. Maybe I get them on air and we talk about it. Because I think there's a lot that can be done here. I'm much more excited about this than the typical thing that I hear about with compost heating. This is what I'm really excited about. This guy built a rocket stove in his greenhouse. It's not an idea. He built it. It's there. It's sitting there. And he said, this works better. It's less work. So he has both options, and he likes this better. That is powerful to me. So check the video out. That's something I got coming for you between the Harris, the Mills, and the Spirico. We'll figure out what we're going to do with it. Uh, next up, really great question from Jamie. How do you fight confirmation bias? With social media, it's easy to follow groups and people and pages we agree with. It's just as easy to filter out the things that we disagree with. Our natural tendency is to associate with people who are like us, and so we tend to create our own echo chamber. I believe that's the primary reason our country has become so divided over the past 20 years. You seem to do a good job of looking at all sides of an issue. What steps do you personally take to combat confirmation bias so this is actually again a really great question and first thing i want to say is i tend to get involved with groups and follow people that i agree with i don't actually have a problem with that um part of that though is i know i follow one of my main rules in life i know why i believe what i believe so i, I don't generally associate with people like that to so you got Perception bias and confirmation bias. Perception bias is everything I see, I have a certain perception to how I'm going to view that. Confirmation is I'm specifically seeking information that confirms what I believe. I'm not following those groups to confirm anything. I'm following those groups to learn, to interact, communicate, whatever. I just We hang out with people we like, and I don't think they're directly related, though they can be correlated. 
Now, how we get rid of this in our lives is we use logic and reason. That, that's what we do. We step back from the issue and we use logic and reason. I have a great teachable moment here. The Catholic students that were protesting in D.C. for uh, pro-life that ended up in some kind of confrontation with Native American guy, and there's this photo of this Native American guy in this kid's face, and the kid has this kind of smirk look on his face. One That one second they caught that smirk, uh, and it looks like the kid's being an ass, and this grown-ass old man is beating a drum and chanting Indian songs at this kid. And the whole world is ready to, 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 to string this kid up, and even people on the right were saying this is not right, this is not how we're supposed to behave. And it turned out it was all complete bullshit fake news. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I have not watched any of the videos. I have not read any of the articles. I just know what's come out in the end is that the media lied again, that this guy came and got in this kid's face, that a bunch of people on the outside were chanting vulgarities at these kids, and that the kid didn't do shit except sit there and smile at the guy. That was it. Okay? Um, but I already knew it was bullshit without any confirmation or perception bias problems at all, not going, oh, this is an activist or whatever. This is what I know. Children went to an organized march for something they believe in. Whether I agree with them or not at this point is irrelevant. They could be neo-Nazis. They could be Boy Scouts. They're exercising their right to protest. They're doing it legally. They're not blocking traffic. They're not tearing buildings down. They're just walking with some signs to make a point so that if people want to, to, to pay attention, they can. Into this, a grown-ass man initiates a conflict with children. Why did I know that was the case? Because under those circumstances, the only way there's a conflict is for someone to initiate it. They were doing their thing in their space. They were not marching on his house. He went into their thing and initiated contact and created a conflict with children. So I don't need any of the story if I use logic and reason. When a grown-ass man initiates a conflict with a child, the grown-ass man bears the, the burden of responsibility. And this is how we should view every story. When something seems sensationalistic or whatever, just step back. Just step back. You know, Trump uh, approves the dumping of, un of limitless toxins into the ocean. Wait a minute. No, he didn't. First of all, he can't. Trump does not have the power to say, you can dump anything you want in the ocean. That's not how our government works. So you already know at that point, that headline is bullshit. So then read the article. And then step back from that and use logic and reason with it. So when the article says something like, uh, he's rescinded a 2014 Obama rule, okay, was it legal to dump unlimited toxins in the ocean in 2013? No. Then this whole thing is just not a start. Now, I don't have to like Trump or hate Trump for that to be logic. It's all about logic. So the way you avoid this confirmation bias, this perception bias problem is to analyze every story as though you don't give a shit who's right or wrong. And do the best you can with it. You'll never be 100%, including me. I have been gotten. I have gotten emotional over things. And when I found out the full full breadth of it, it was not worth getting emotional over. Uh, I have believed things and used it as a proof point when it turned out to be false. But every time you do realize that you were wrong, let that let that feedback linger. Let it make you feel bad. Don't turn away from it. And endeavor to do better next time. And just pick things apart. And again, is it worth picking apart? 
And I know I'm going to tell you, how did you make all these things? You ended up being right, but how did you know you were right? And blah, blah, blah. Like with this, this kid and this, this Indian guy. Um, the reason I didn't dig, dig deep into that one is I knew that, that two things were, were true. Number one, I really didn't give a shit. I really didn't give a shit. Didn't care. You notice I didn't do a, you know, Jack, uh, a flip out Friday video on Facebook about it or anything. It doesn't really affect me. It's, this is not a big story in of itself. The media lying to the American people again, big story. What actually happened, whether the kid was a prick or the Indian was a prick, it's just, they made a story out of nothing. So what? So some Indian beat a drum and yelled at a kid. Or some kid told some Indian to screw off. I don't believe in prote protected classes of citizens. Everybody's treated the same. If somebody told me to screw off, it wouldn't be on CNN and Fox News, would it? So, in the end, I didn't give a shit. So that's number one. Number two, I knew, I knew what the truth was. At least, I wouldn't say I knew it. I was 99% sure, and I didn't give a shit. But I knew if I was right, the truth would come out. I didn't need to be part of bringing that one. I got other shit I'm going to dig and bring truth to light. So I just let it go. But if I would have been like, if I would have been really concerned about this, I would have like, okay, let's get all the information. And if you wait till you get information before you make decisions about things, then you're going to solve most of this problem. And so again, before you even take the time to tear something apart, does it affect me? And do I really care? And if you start shelving all the stuff you don't really care about or can't do anything about that doesn't really affect you, then the stuff that you actually care about that does affect you, you'll be able to do a much better job of ferreting out the truth on it. Lastly, you have to realize that just because somebody came to a conclusion doesn't mean they're correct. So if they say, well, the report says, or the trial says, or uh, the, the experiment says, and we have now confirmed this, you still can analyze it and still figure out that maybe they're wrong. There's a lot of money involved and a lot of the stuff that we're told. And people every day on the streets in America, which is actually one of the, no matter what people tell you, America is one of the safest countries in the world ever. But every day in America, people have things like they're beaten up or knived or shot over a few hundred dollars. When you look at situations with industries that measure sales in billions, if someone will shoot you over a hundred bucks, a corporation will murder thousands or certainly mislead millions over a billion dollars. Never think that that is not uh, the truth, because it is. They, they will do it. Last episode here, or last, last uh, uh, story in the episode here, um, I got an article from John and Moore Park, again, my one-man research team, and colleges are putting education on sale. Here's an example. St. John's College, which is a private institution, slashed tuition in the school year uh, from $52,000 to $35,000 this year. This is a liberal arts school with campuses in Maryland and New Mexico. Join more than 20 others nationwide that have reduced prices in the past three years. Um, what's going on here is, is multifaceted. Number one... And you can read the whole article if you want to. I'll have a link in the show notes for you. But number one, kids in general, especially kids that are in multi-child families that have watched their big brother go to college, spend lots of money, get a degree, and not find a job, or even if they find a job, it's not really related to the degree, or even if they find a job related to the degree, they're having a hard time paying their student loans, 
are realizing that education is overpriced in America, just plain and simple. So they're not going. And colleges have been able to avoid the reality of the market for a very long time because they have a situation that is not a market-based economy. And what I mean by that is when you have millions of potential customers, new customers each business cycle, who have unlimited access to financing, being brainwashed by government that they're worthless unless they buy your product. There is no other market I know of like that. It is The only other markets I know that are this fake are mandated markets, like let's say public education, where it's paid for with public money, but even public colleges, there's a cost to going. Kids have to come up with money somehow. So the this is the the higher education market in America is one rung away from mandated, one rung away from making people go. Um, but <laughs> that said, it's it's just as good because you're at a point now where something like seventy percent of kids coming out of high school go to some level of college or more. Depending in some bar, some places in the United States, the number is closer to ninety five percent. There are certain uh, districts where 95% of kids that graduate go on to college. And that is ridiculous in of itself. So the colleges have grown massive under this glut of cash. And they've been able to raise tuition every year, even without improving their product in any way, shape, or form. The campus might have been bit, gotten bigger. The kids might have another recreational center or something like that. But the, the quality of the product, because what you're buying is the degree. In the end, the degree is le worth less money than it was 10 years ago because there's more people that have it. Something is valuable in many instances because it's rare. The more of it that's available, the law of supply and demand, etc. So the colleges have milked this cow to the infinity. They have created an, a bubble. You talk about the student loan bubble. No one talks about the education bubble. Edu the education market itself is in an artificially inflated bubble. And they built a system that's very much like a Ponzi scheme in a way, in that there is no plan, no plan B, right? There is no plan for what if the market shrinks. So even just a small percentage less students is very painful to these university systems. So as they begin to have economic issues, they do the only thing they can. The law of the market finally takes over Gee, we're too expensive. We need to go on sale. The problem is most of the people running these institutions have no idea how to run a business because they've been in this fake bubble world for so long. They don't understand why businesses put products on sale. They put products on sale for a few reasons. One, we're discontinuing this product and we want to get rid of the inventory before we bring the new product out. Number two, we want to get customers that we would not otherwise get and grow our customer base. When a business does it for the third reason, which is why the colleges are doing it because they know it or not, to try to maintain your market size, you're in decline. Because if you succeed, your gross revenue still goes down. And when your gross revenue begins to go down in a business, once that cycle begins, unless you make drastic changes to your efficiencies, and your expenses, and your acquisitions, it is terminal. It continues, and you waste away like an emaciated cancer patient. And that's exactly where these universities are headed. There is no way that they can cut the price by, let's say, 25% 
and then get enough students past the old bogey to make up for it. It's a shrinking market, and even the population, the number of new kids available every year, you know, just being produced by parents. People are having less children. Even that market's shrinking. You have shrinkage everywhere, the value of the degree in decline, and people unwilling to go into lifetime crippling debt to acquire it. Because $35,000 a year is still insane. It's insane. I, I, I said it five years ago. That within five to ten years, you're going to start to see universities closing, build, if not the whole university, closing down, you know, campus uh, assets, selling off buildings, shrinking. Here it is. This is the beginning. This is the beginning, and it's going to be, it's going to get more and more and more. And the only thing that they're going to be able to do is what all of the big retailers have done: switch to an online model. Switch to an online model. And the problem with that is, once it goes online, once it gets mass, I know it's already there, mass acceptance. Like this is a way to do it. Then the efficiencies get leaned way out. And how many universities do we need? How many Amazons do we need? You know, how many people go to jcpenny.com or walmart.com or whatever instead of Amazon? And a lot. But... You know, if you if you went out today and you were looking for investors and they said, well, what's your plan? I'm going to start up a new website where you can buy anything like a mall on it. Anything from tires for you. They'd be like, oh, like Amazon. Well, no, it's going to be Jackazon. And they'd be like, no, I'm not putting money here. You mean, how, many, how many sites like that do we need? So then you have to go into the world of niche and vertical markets. And somebody that builds the online education platform that is the best optimized for computer programming. Not a college university that has 800 programs now from basket weaving to bitterness and gender studies, right? Like, this is what we do. And we have this, you know, progressive program that either works like you have like an entry-level program that gets you a job in six months. You know, you go to a, a master's level now instead of it being a master's degree, it's truly being a master of your craft. And it forks from there. And you end up with a multitude of, you're going to have more options in education. But they're all going to cost less. They're all going to cost less. Universities aren't going away. We need universities for doctors and lawyers and some of the, some of the programs in STEM degrees and things like that. But even those, like a whole assload of that can be done without going to university, and then you complete your studies in that environment. I'm telling you, we're five years into my 10-year prediction. We're a little behind where I thought we would be, but we're not that far. You're going to start seeing, basically, the education market crumble in the next five years. Hugely crumble. We're going to change the way people learn. We're going to make education far more scalable and far more tailored to the individual. It's going to be great. And it's going to be horrible at the same time. It's going to be great because the product is going to be so much better, so much less expensive. It's going to be horrible because it's a trillion-dollar industry that's going to go into collapse. And it's going to be one of many disrupted sectors that causes wailing and gnashing of teeth as we, we evolve through this period of human history. And, and that's what you have to understand. That's what we're doing. And this, has happened, this is not like it's never happened before. It's never happened this way in this sector before. But we've had entire, you know... If you adjust for inflation, trillion-dollar industries completely eliminated before, 
and it's always made us better in the end. But when you look at history, you read the before and the after. You don't read a lot about the during, and more importantly, even if you read about the during, you didn't go through it, so you don't really know what it's like. But I think this will be one of the things that causes the next recession. Uh, a coupling of automation, reducing jobs, and a collapse of the largest, maybe I'd say the second largest industry in the world, with, with the first largest industry being healthcare. Because energy is behind that, guys, by the way. Not in total dollars, but in direct impact for the average person and how many people are employed and things like that. Yeah. If you look at how many people have jobs in oil versus how many people are medical assistants, for, industry, for instance, okay, uh, education and uh, health care, directly and indirectly, have a huge, huge effect on the totality of the economy. And health care will change a great deal, but education will change faster and have greater implications initially. Uh, I think health care, we're going to see a big popping of that bubble too. We're going to get to a point where people are just like, you know what? I can't afford 12 grand for health insurance. We're going to cut the cash cows off, and 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 the healthcare industry is going to have to adapt. And hopefully, they're paying attention to what's going on here, and they'll get a hair of the power curve. But I doubt it. Um, pharmaceuticals are billion dollar industries. They don't want to give up the power they have, but sooner or later, they're going to have to. Uh, I won't get into it any further because then we'll get political, and the show will go long, and we're already over time. So let's go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you guys if you want to help support the show, one of the ways that you can do that. Just do your online shopping at tspaz.com where you can see all my Amazon reviews. Product of the day I have for you today is the Felco F2 hand pruners. Um, I love Felco pruners. Now, I also have another product mentioned there um, for you if you have smaller hands, the F6, which a lot of people seem to prepare, prepare, prefer the F6 over the F2. They're basically clones and one is a little smaller. But The reason I'm bringing this around is it's January, all your trees are dormant, and spring is closer than you think it is, and this is the time to get out and prune your trees. Uh, I talked to you guys about it last year, and a few trees I didn't get pruned, and I had a couple trees I lost limbs off. If I had one tree, I even lost the whole tree because uh, I didn't prune it, and it got a heavy fruit set, and it just basically split the tree down the middle, and then the drought hit, and it killed the tree. So I'm not going to mess up this year. I've got my pruners. i got no excuse. Good time to get a set of pruners. I'll also give you some... Lower cost alternatives. These are expensive as hand pruners go, about 50 bucks. Um, the Corona 6250 is about 28 bucks. That would be uh, my number two pick uh, beyond Felco. Number three, I'll give you is the uh, Corona 7100D. They're about $20. If you're going to go cheaper than that on pruners, go buy generic $10 pruners at the store, throw them away next year, realize it was a mistake and buy a better set uh, next year. Unless you already did that, and then this year it's time to go ahead and get those pruners. I got a video in the post today, too, to show you how to sharpen pruners. Um, this, I think, is one of those tools on the homestead that is best bought in a buy-once, cry-once mindset. You get a good set of Felco pruners, and you will own them for the rest of your life. Your kids will either use them or sell them after Grandpa dies. I mean, that, that is the type of tool these are. If you talk to nurserymen, That, that prune you know thousands of trees a year for shipping and whatnot, they're going to tell you that they all carry Felcos. And when an industry that is this you know this picky about what they use and everybody agrees on something, 
I don't fight that trend. I follow it. I recommend you do too. But remember, not only can you find my review on the Falco F2 hand pruners, uh, you can find all of my reviews, everything alphabetically uh, categorized for you uh, at tspaz.com. As long as you shop from there, no matter what you buy, you do help the show no matter what it is. That brings us to our song of the day. We are in the train song week, and I have a song from Jim Croce called The Railroad Song today. And uh, this is not my favorite type of music. I do like train songs, but eh, it's, it's okay. I don't have a playlist on Pandora for them. I'll put it to you that way. However, I do like them. What I like about this song is it talks about how, as a kid, he used to dream about travel in the railroad, uh, kind of a hobo mindset, you know, and doing odd jobs along the way and finding a pretty black-eyed girl to sit at his side, that type of thing, and uh, how he never did it. And how now the trains don't run anymore. Now trains do run, but a lot of the maybe the places he particularly paid attention to don't run. He talks about the mines being shut down, so the coal cars aren't going. And that's definitely certainly something that happened. And you know, the whole you can talk about economics in the United States and everything there, and, and changing industries, uh, and we could have survival lessons from that. But we, we don't need to go there. I think what's more important here is he had a dream he never pursued. And the ability to pursue the dream isn't there anymore. And that's something I think all of us should think about. If you have a dream, something you really want to do, start asking yourself, how can I, instead of saying someday. If you do that, you're more likely to actually pursue that dream. Because you may find someday that it's not possible. Maybe you got too old. Maybe you got too enslaved with debt. Maybe you got too many obligations. Or maybe the thing itself just isn't there anymore. Or maybe life has come at you in a, in a bad way and for some physical reason you can't pursue it anymore. So since you're not, you're not sure of the future and the only thing you control is the now, if you have a dream, take a shot at it. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In the days of the train, I'd sit by the track. On a long summer day And I'd wave to the brakeman And he'd wave back at me While the thunderclouds rolled Out of East Tennessee But the dreams of a boy Disappear when you're grown And though I may dream The railroads are gone the ties, they are rotted, and the track shot to hell, along with my dreams, and the old railroad bell. In my dreams, I'd ride the rails to California, working diners and farms along the way, or I'd hop to hide across the border With a black-eyed girl beside me all the way But now the mountains are silent And the railroads are gone And the coal town's no longer Hear the miners at dawn But the train whistle shrills Out of memories to me while the thunderclouds roll out of East Tennessee. 
In my dreams I'd ride the rails to California Work in diners and farms along the way Or I'd hop a ride to hide across the border With a black-eyed girl beside me all the way But now the mountains are silent And the railroads are gone And the coal town's no longer Hear the miners at dawn But the train whistle shrills Out of memories to me While the thunderclouds roll Out of East Tennessee